podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. Today is Thursday, the 5th of January. And we had four games in the Premier League last night, all of which turned out to be pretty exciting, if we're being completely fair and honest. Southampton nil, Nottingham Forest won. Massive, massive win for Forest, but it feels like a really big defeat for Southampton at the same time. Teo Awani with the only goal of the game on 27 minutes. Dreadful mistake by Lyanko. Sets Brennan Johnson through. Johnson squares it. A one E has a tap in. And that's all she wrote. 
no shots on target for Southampton in a home game is fairly shocking when you have 63% of the ball. They didn't really force Dean Henderson to be worried at any point in the game. And I think, well, I've seen, there's already some rumblings among the Saints fans that they're not at all impressed with Nathan Jones and they wouldn't be against another change of manager. Nathan Jones said he was surprised that the fans booed after the final whistle well went. I don't know how you can be surprised when you've just lost at home our bottom of the league, had zero shots on target. I don't know why you'd be surprised. You've been at the club now for five games. You've won one and lost four. And the one game you won wasn't in the Premier League. So what exactly are you surprised by? You beat Lincoln 2-1. That's your only win so far. You've lost all four Premier League games. And you haven't looked good in any of them. Now, we know Saints need to do some business in this window. And they are rumoured to be looking to bring in Carlos Alcaraz, a striker, and... Orsic, so another attacking midfielder, but they need to get those deals done like very, very quickly because time is running out here. Now, you're fortunate that there's a lot of bad teams in the Premier League this year. And you're fortunate that the league is so condensed. I mean, Forrest, who have who looked completely hopeless against United in the first game back after the break got a draw with Chelsea and won last night, and they're now up to 15th. So a couple of good results can see you make some ground up the table. It felt like the cheap appointment when they made it. Tactically, he seems... Tactically, he seems a little bit confused by what he has and what he wants to do. Like, he's putting players out in a back three, and it worked. They have the players for it, but he doesn't seem to be putting out the best version of the players. So, Dujakaleta Carr is ideal in the middle of a back three, and yet he's playing Lianko there. And Lianko has always been better as a flanking defender in a back three. And if we look at that game last night, the lineup that they went with, Basuno and Gold, that's fine. Bella Kocha, Blayanko and Salisu, that's fine. Walker Peters and Perot, that's fine. Ward Prowse and Elianassi as your kind of midfield two with Lavia sit- sitting behind. Elianassi doesn't suit that type of position. Elianassi needs to be wide to have a real impact. He needs space to play in. He doesn't offer any physicality in midfield. And Ward-Prowse doesn't offer anything in open play. He went with Sekou Mara and Che Adams up front. Like, you have Stuart Armstrong sitting on the bench. You have Ibrahima Diallo sitting on the bench, both of whom are much better suited to that central midfield role than El Yanassi. Coletta Carr much better suited to that central defensive role than Leanko. So I'm not really sure 
what his logic is there. I get that he's seeing these players in training, and I get that he's probably basing his team selections on training, but sometimes you have to base your team selection on fit and putting players in positions that they actually play. El Yanassi has been a winger his entire career. So why are you now trying to make him into a central midfielder? Very, very strange. Credit to Steve Cooper. I said before the game, I don't think he's done a particularly particularly good job this year, and I do stand by that. But he has made a couple of big decisions, and they have led to a turnaround in in Forrest's fortunes, like dropping Steve Cook. But it just took far too long to drop Steve Cook. Not playing Froiler and Mangala together for ages was another strange one. Now he's playing them together and they're getting results. Gibbs, White, Johnson and the striker. Not Johnson as the striker. Johnson needs to play off a striker. And it looked quite good last night with a 1E as the 9. It wouldn't surprise me if Saints have another managerial change this season because it's not looking good with Nathan Jones. Leeds 2, West Ham 2. Nanto put Leeds 1 up on 27 minutes with a great finish. Lucas Paqueta made it 1-1 from the penalty spot just before halftime. Immediately after halftime, Gianluca Scamacca scored an outstanding goal to make it 2-1. But Rodrigo Moreno equalised with a lovely left-foot shot from the edge of the box on 70, and that made it 2-2. This was a good game. It was quite exciting. Uh, Tyler Adams, once again, dog-walked Declan Rice, which is kind of par for the course at this point, uh, twice in less than a month. Declan Rice must be sick of the sight of him. It was interesting to see Moyes go to a 4-3-3, which isn't a David Moyes formation, but to his credit... It did kind of work, and they were able to flex it a little bit into a 4-4-2 when they didn't have the ball. Pablo Fernandes will have absolute nightmares about that chance he missed in the first half. But it obviously did result in the penalty, so um, fair enough. Tilo Carrere as a left-back is not something David Moyes should be trying again. Um, Moyes is still going to be under a lot of pressure because West Ham, even with their point, are only 17th in the league. They're only ahead of Everton on goal difference. They've scored one more goal than Everton. They have conceded exactly the same amount. They're minus nine, Everton are minus 10, both with 15 points, both with one point from the last 15 available. Fortunate that Bournemouth appear on a reunion course with the championship that Southampton can't get out from under their own feet and that Wolves had such a bad start that they're not in the bottom three. With the talent there, you'd still back West Ham to get out of it, as I would back Wolves to get out of their mess. Right now, I think Bournemouth, Everton and Southampton look like the three who go down. For Leeds, it's another solid point. They could do it starting to win a few more games, though, because right now they sit level on points with Leicester and with Nottingham Forest, only two points outside the relegation zone. Their defensive record this season, minus 31, is a shambles. But at least for them, they score a lot of goals. They've got 25 this season. 
Liam Cooper, another poor night last night. Poor for the schematic goal, just completely lost his man and missed a sitter as well. So you'd imagine that with the new signing coming in, he's likely the one that finds his way out of the team. Aston Villa won, Wolves won. Daniel Pedence with a lovely goal on 12 minutes. Matinho finds him just inside the box. Really quick feet and good balance to beat his man. And a great finish gave Emi Martinez no real opportunity to even dive, let alone have a chance to save the ball. Danny Ings equalised on 78. I'm really not sure what was going on with the Wolves defence. I'm really not sure what was going on. Uh, Hugo Bueno played everybody on side and was taken off about 60 seconds later, which leads me to believe that Lopetegui realised that that's what had happened. Whether he was injured or not, I don't know. This was a pretty good game. I thought Wolves defended well. I thought the midfield battle was quite good. Um, I thought Matthias Nunes was the best player on the pitch, but him and Neves against Kamara and Luiz was a really good contest. I thought Wang was a little bit lucky not to see red for the tackle on Douglas Luiz. Villa need a striker, a goal scorer, someone to play with Ollie Watkins. I've always said I think Ivan Tony is the one. I think Tony and Watkins would just be horrible to play against. I think they'd fit really well together and be horrible to play against. Uh, it was interesting to see City or City Villa go with Matt Cash as a right winger in front of Ashley Young and really double down on defending nobody because Pedenz doesn't play on the left, he roams inside, and the left was just Wolves left was kind of a vacant lot. But uh yeah, interesting, decent game of football, and the draw was the fair result. Crystal Palace nil, Tottenham four. I said Spurs needed a big reaction, I said they needed a result. And to their credit, they were very, very good. Harry Kane got the first and the second. Matt Doherty got the third. And Youngman's son wrapped it up, though it did take quite a big deflection off the sole of the boot of Mark Gwehi. I've been saying that when Kulisevsky's not available, Spurs need to use Brian Hill because he's a similar type of player who can connect attack and defense, give them something in between the midfield line and the front two. And Brian Hill was involved in three of the goals last night. Uh, One assist and two hockey assists. The assist for Kane is excellent. Really, really good. And all things considered, I thought he had an excellent game. Um, Good to see Son on the score sheet, and hopefully his confidence lifts, and we see more of the real Youngman Son. The, The biggest thing I really enjoyed seeing was Papi Matar Sar getting a run out. And I thought when he came on, he provided energy and aggression that really fit in well with what Spurs needed at that time just to kind of see out the results. But this was the best Spurs have looked in a while. Palace looked awful. They looked really awful. And the thing is, Palace had a really good chance early in the game to go one up. Great work by Zaha, Fed AU. All he needs to do is shift the ball on to Michael Elise, who's completely unmarked, 15 yards from goal. And he decides to shoot. He's, 
He's a hard-working player, but he's a brainless football player, is AU. What that means for Spurs is that they are two points behind Manchester United, though United do have a game in hand. They are now five points ahead of Liverpool, but again, Liverpool do have a game in hand. Fifth place won't be good enough for Antonio Conte. He will be demanding more, but hopefully yesterday is the start of them getting their act together and starting to put together some results. For Palace, they drop into 12th. It's three defeats in four and two really bad defeats since the restart. 25 goals conceded is not good enough considering they play a defensive back four where the fullbacks don't really venture forward all that much. Only 17 goals conceded, or sorry, only 17 goals scored might hint at the fact that you need to stop playing Au and play either Eduard or Mateta, whoever's fit, whoever's ready. Au offers nothing to this team other than a bit of work rate. And you'll get that from Mateta. You'll get it from Eduard. Andre Ayew is in season four at Crystal Palace. He's played 127 games. He has scored 14 goals. Take out the first season, 39 games, nine goals. So in two and a half years, he has scored five goals for this team. In 88 games, five goals. That is appalling by any standards. And I'm actually wrong. It's it's a full, it's four and a half season. Well, sorry, this is a half season. So it will be three and a half seasons as a permanent player. He had a half season as a lone player as well, where he scored two and 25 coming from Swansea. Two in 25. So you're looking at seven goals in 113 games. If you remove the 1920 season, seven goals. In a, that's absolutely shocking. Get him out of your team. And while you're at it, go and buy yourself a proper right back and another midfielder to fit in with Dekure because he's looking awfully overrun. Awfully overrun. I get that Vieira has a soft spot or whatever it is for Jeff Schlupp. Jeff Schlupp is a fullback converted to a winger because he couldn't defend. He's not a central midfielder. Get a real central midfielder in there and put a real striker up there. You've got two of them. They're both better than him. And get a proper right back. And you'll be in good shape. You'll be in really good shape. But that last night was unacceptable from Palace. I like this Palace team. I like Vieira. I like the work he's done, but he's too reliant on he's too reliant on, I think, what he views as 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 reliable older players that let him down game after game after game. Like Klein and Ward were awful last night. Absolutely awful. Why is Joel Ward playing left back? Fella can't even play right back. And I get that you don't have great options at the moment, but there's no reason to be playing Joel Ward at left back. You, you, you've got Schlupp. Play Schlupp at left back. At least he's played there. And bring Will Hughes into midfield. Play Eduard up front. There's a significantly improved team from what you put out last night. 
We've one game tonight. Oh, I should point out Villa. Villa are eleventh now. That's three wins and five with a draw. Only the one defeat. That's pretty good for Unai Emery. He has turned things around quickly. Has them into mid table. Only three points behind Chelsea, who's at tenth. Though Chelsea do have a game in hand. Four points behind uh, Brentford with the same amount of games. Uh, Wolves are nineteenth, still in the bottom three, but four points from their last three games is an improvement. Lopetegui, it'll take a bit of time, but he'll keep them up. Uh, one game tonight, then. Chelsea currently sitting in 10th, one win in their last six in the Premier League, I think, against Manchester City, who sits second, eight points behind Arsenal. Do they do have a game in hand? This is an opportunity to close that gap down to five points, and five points with 21 games left, you'd really be backing City quite heavily to go on and win the league. City's attack is obviously very centric around Erling Haaland. Other players need to start remembering that they're allowed to score goals as well. Defensively, they need to get a lot better. They're still like they still have the third best defensive record in the league, but they're allowing far too many chances. And they're getting punished for the chances they allow. Whereas in previous years, they didn't allow a lot of chances and they really got punished for those chances. City, right now, to me, always feel like they'll concede a goal. So they've sort of got to get themselves two up to be comfortable. You know, that Everton game, they should have had it put to bed. It should have been over and done with. Uh, The Brentford one was tough. They went one down. They fought back. They dominated. But then Brentford caught them on the counter-attack. When they played Aston Villa, they destroyed Villa, but ended up drawing 1-1. When they played Fulham, they went one up, had a man sent off, conceded, and then managed to fight back. What was the... Oh, yeah, the Villa one was the 1-1. Like, the Newcastle game as well, like, they go one up and they hit cruise control and all of a sudden they're 3-1 down and then they realise that there's a game going on around them. Like City need to be better than that. City need to be more ruthless. What they have been in recent years is ruthless. They get a goal, they put their foot in your neck and they go and get another one. That's been the City model. Chelsea are a bit of a tyre fire at the moment. Can't score goals. Defensively, they're still strong-ish. But teams have figured out how to expose them, the lack of pace, the susceptibility in the air. I think those are things that Chelsea will need to adapt, adapt uh, address. Now, Wes Fafana will help that. I think Badi Ashile will help that, though he is still quite raw and quite young, as is Fafana. They'll be a really good partnership in time, but... In the next couple of years, they're going to be quite error-prone and it might be a bit of a... a bit of a period of patience required for Chelsea fans. Um, In good news, Enzo Fernandez's deal has fallen through. So I'm happy. Chelsea fans aren't. But then, 
Chelsea fans allowed themselves to be lied to by the spoofer with the catchphrase, who then had to backtrack quite heavily yesterday. Having said the deal was advanced, yesterday he comes out and informs people that Chelsea's offer was €85 million Euro when um, Benfica want €120 million. Euro. When you're €35 million Euro apart, you're not in advanced negotiations. One side is just laughing at the other. That's what that is. Uh, so good to see Romano, Jacobs, Phillips, that spoofing YouTuber, and all the rest just firmly in the mud. I'm thinking of appointing myself as the spoofer hunter of Twitter to just spend my days trawling around and labeling people as spoofers because it's what they are and it's what they deserve. Simple as that. Um, yeah, we'll take a break. When we come back, we've got a few questions and then we'll do the gossip and be done. I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, uh, questions time. First up is Mikhail Campbell. Do you think the recent news about the rift between the Reina family and the USA manager Greg Berhalter will have a severe impact on their national team? I do think it could. Um, so for those that don't know, Giovanni Reina is a current United States men's international player. His father is Claudio Reina, uh, United States Legend, I suppose, former captain of the team, played for Bayer Leverkusen, Wolfsburg, Rangers, Sunderland, Man City, and New York Red Bulls. Uh, He very much wants his son in the team. And his son is one of the most talented players that the United States have. His son is also an injury-prone player who appears to have a slightly questionable attitude. So he was called up for the World Cup. He was told, look, you haven't been playing enough at club level. He'd only played in the last year and a half. I think he's only played about 30 games, and many of them are as a sub. So you're going to be a squad player, you know, but if, you know, make the most of it, make the most and try and impact things. And he sulked and he threatened to go home and then they threatened to send him home and his dad got involved and they settled down. And he played some part in their tournament and then Greg Berhalter said there was an issue in the squad and it became public that it was Gio Reyna. And now the fallout begins. And the fallout comes from what was initially reported as Claudio but is now believed to have been his wife threatened Greg Berhalter. Uh, His wife is a lady named uh, Danielle Egan, who is also, I think, a former... Yeah, a former soccer player, a women's... United States women's national soccer team. uh, Six caps back in 93. She threatened him with exposing him over the incident that... Burhalter admitted to where he kicked his wife back in the early 90s. Um, she apparently reported Greg Burhalter to US Soccer, which is the governing body. 
And she said that the reason for this was that she was frustrated by comments made about her son after the team's elimination from the 2022 World Cup. Now, this has got to be quite embarrassing for Gio Reyna to have mommy and daddy come running along to help you because the coach said a mean thing. Claudia Reyna should know better and should understand that there are certain things you just don't do. And one of them is you don't use your own legacy and reputation to try and strong arm the coach of your son's team, regardless of whether that team is an under seven team, a Sunday league team or the national team. Now, I don't know how this gets fixed. I don't know that... Can Berhalter call Gio up now and not have it seem like he's only in the squad because of Claudio? If he leaves him out, what happens? Does Claudio go nuclear on this? How do the other players react? Do they look at this and think, well, if I'm not on the team, I'm getting my dad to ring in. I'll get my mom to go to ESPN or US Soccer or whoever. Like, this is a disastrous situation, mostly for the Reynas, because Gio's a bit of a laughing stock right now. Just get your head down, work harder, play football. Your talent will get you into the team as long as you're working hard. Burhalter has been very clear on that, and I'm not a fan of Greg Burhalter. I think he's a very poor coach. But you have to back him in this scenario. You really do. But Claudio Arena will have some very powerful friends within US soccer. And they may well make a decision now to get rid of Burhalter. And you can't have a situation at international level where a coach is being fired because of a falling out with a 20-year-old. Different if he'd fallen out with Lionel Messi. In that situation, you get rid of him. But not for a 20-year-old squad player. And if he does get sacked, a lot of the players, a lot of the senior players, have a very strong relationship with Burhalter. And when the United States got eliminated from the World Cup, we heard multiple players come out and say that the one thing they'll take from that World Cup is that bond that they formed as a group that the manager was a key component of and how he went about creating a culture and giving them the belief in themselves that they could go and have real success. And how do those players now react if they're very loyal? If they take the manager's side, do they start to freeze this young fella out? Does he get hazed? You'd hope that doesn't happen, but it wouldn't be a surprise if they stopped passing the ball to him in training or something or tackling him a bit harder in training than they normally would. It was an unfortunate situation at the World Cup. It's a disaster right now. And unless Claudio Reyna, Gio Reyna and... Danielle Egan 
get together and go to Greg Berhalter and beg his forgiveness. I don't know how Gio Reyna plays for the na- for the national team again while Berhalter is in charge. He's certainly not going to get punished, I wouldn't imagine, for that historic incident that happened uh, in t- 1991. It's not like it happened recently. It didn't happen while he was in charge. And obviously he and his wife have moved past it. They're still together. They've had kids. They've gotten well, they weren't they weren't married at the time. They've gotten married. They've had kids and they're still together thirty years later. So I think I think Gio Reyna is the big loser here. I think he is. I I understand that Claudio and Danielle were trying to stand up for their son. It's you know a parent's instinct is a parent's instinct. You want to be protective of those you love, but they've actually just made the situation so much worse for him. In the aftermath of the World Cup, he just looked like a bit of a spoiled brat. Now he looks like the ultimate spoiled brat. So yeah, I, I do think it could cause some some major ripples. Um, C Dev, question for Thursday. If you look for material, love to hear your thoughts on the situation at Newcastle if they continue form and secure Champions League for next season. So let me just say, I, I don't believe they'll get top four this season. They've had a really good run, but I don't believe they'll get top four. Right, so, manager, does Eddie Howe get the chance to see through what he will have earned, or does the leadership, or the ownership sack him and look for better? So this is based on the fact if they get Champions League. If they get Champions League, they'll absolutely keep him. I don't think there's any doubt there. Squad, assuming they're in the Champions League, what would their squad need to compete? Um, At least one quality goal-scoring attacking wide player maybe more creative than goal scoring considering the form Almiron has showed and he doesn't really create anything so maybe more of a creative wide player and then you kind of have St Maximum as your third wide player that you can rotate um at least two in midfield one definite starter to go with Bruno and 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 Jolington. Now, ideally, I would look for two starters to go with Bruno Gomerish. Either a six and a goal-scoring type of eight and have him as the kind of fulcrum eight where everything runs through him, a bit like Thiago at Liverpool. Or two box-to-box, aggressive, ball-winning midfielders, say like Kone and Caicedo, or Kone, yeah, Kone and Caicedo would be the ideal, and play Gamerish as the six with those two flanking him, I think that could work very, very well. That might actually be the best balance, especially with, you know, an attack-minded front three. I think they'd need to improve left-back, and they'd need an upgrade on Fabian Schaar, so I'm looking at five, five starters. Yeah, five starters, I think. And look, Shar has been really good this year. Dan Byrne's been really good. Willock, Longstaff, Jolington, they've all been very good. But when you get to that elite level, it's just a different... You're swimming in a different ocean altogether. You know, you're out of the paddling pool and you're in with the Sharks, basically. Um, what would their season's object- season objectives be if they qualify for the Champions League? Give it a go in Europe or have a nice tour and focus on staying in the top four. I think staying in the top four 
and trying to win a domestic cup. Champions League is all well and good, but if you get Champions League this season, like that's way ahead of schedule. I think the important thing is establishing yourself in that top four group. But silverware, because those fans crave it. So I would say staying in the top four, enjoying the Champions League, but not stressing too much of it. Staying in the top four, try and win one of those smaller cups. Where should Eddie Howe go for his next project if they sack him? If they sacked him now, I'd say West Ham. I'd say West Ham is a club well suited to him. And I think that job will become available quite soon. I don't think Moyes is long for that one. So I would say I would say West Ham. Uh, Arman, I have two questions. When did Virgil van Dijk become so slow? What do we do about his form? I don't think he has become slow. I think he's just playing what he's been playing with an injury. And now that we know he's out for six to eight weeks, I think that just shows that that isn't an injury that he suffered in that game. I think it was an injury that he had going into the game that he exacerbated. And I think that's why when Brian and Bomo run, ran away from it, it looked like he was struggling a bit. I think it was because he was injured. What do we do about his form? I think this rest is going to do him the world of good. He's played an awful lot of football over the last few years and, you know, had that horrible injury and a, and a long, long recovery. I think the rest will do him good. I'm not overly concerned about Virgil. Guy was the best defender in Europe last season. He hasn't just f- completely forgotten how to do what he does. I, I I also don't think he's helped by the fact that the midfield in front of him has been a sieve and just allows opposing midfielders to run relentlessly through on Liverpool's defence. I don't think any Liverpool defenders had a good season. I think Trent was poor for the first half of the season. I think Matip's been quite poor. I think he gets bullied far too easily. I think Robertson's been quite poor. So, you know, if it's all of them, then that suggests to me it's a system issue rather than an individual issue. AMK2889. Your opinion on the following players, overrated, underrated, moved too often, made the wrong move, waited too long to move, and did any of them have the career that was expected of them? Right, we've got 17 players here, so we'll go through them. Uh, Timo Horn. I like Timo Horn as a goalkeeper. I really liked him when he first broke through a Cologne. I thought he needed to move on. In about 2015, after that first season in the Bundesliga. And here we are, seven, almost eight years later, and he's still there. Now he's, you know, racked up the appearances 200 and sorry, 329 senior appearances for Cologne's first team in the Bundesliga and second Bundesliga. He's never been capped by Germany which is unfortunate. But I think it's as a result of a bit of stagnation there. Um, I don't think he's become the player he should have become because I think he stayed far too long. Jacob Blazikowski. 
known as Kuba. Who's still playing, and I had no idea he was still playing. He's playing for Wisla Krakow in Poland. Um, most notable for his time at Borussia Dortmund. He was a very important part of Jurgen Klopp's team there. Uh, for me, overrated. Um, look, he performed an important task. He was a workhorse. He wasn't someone that was going to win you a game, though he would pop up from time to time with a big goal. But I, I think his... um. I think his importance was, or his quality rather, was was overhyped. Just a, a player that put his head down and grafted really hard and made up for the limitations he had. And I would say the same of Park Ji Sung, who somehow became at one point one of the most overrated players around. You know, he was at United for seven years and he was never much more than a squad player. We heard Ferguson, or we've heard Ferguson in hindsight come out and said, Oh, I should have put Park Ji Sung on Messi and that would have helped win us the European Cup. Now, bear in mind, Park Ji Sung arrived at United as an attacking midfielder. You know, he got 11 goals in 44 games in his second full season at PSG. Uh, when he was at Coyote Purple Sanga in J1, he got 8 and 29 in his last season. Now he's an attacking midfielder and he arrived at United and Ferguson decided he was, you know, just going to be a little ratter running around man-marking and kicking people because he didn't have the the quality, I suppose. Though he did have a couple of decent seasons, like in front of goal. He got five and 14 games in 06-07 in the Premier League. Five and 15 and 10-11. Um, but I do think he's become a little bit overrated. But again, players like that do. Technically limited grafters do. And he was quite an intelligent player to his credit. But yeah, I, I would say overrated uh, for me anyway. Holger Batstuba. I was a big, big fan of this fella. And I thought he was going to be a top, top centre-back. But knee injuries absolutely torpedoed his career. And he never had the career that he should have had. Like, he was starting for Germany at 21 and looking like he had the potential to be one of the best defenders in the world. He was tall, he was quick, he was aggressive, he was powerful, he was good in the ball, left-footed as well, which is always, you know, a bonus because you don't get all that many left-footed centre-backs. Could play in a three, could play in a two, could slot in at left-back if you needed them to. He had everything, really. And then injuries just completely scuppered him. He broke into the Bayern team, I, I remember, under Van Hal, And just, from day one, just looked so at home. Looked so at home. Now, look, he won a bunch of stuff. Five league titles, four cups, three Super Cups, a Champions League, a European Super Cup, and a World Club Cup. And he was part of the German team that finished third in 2010. But then he wasn't even part of the squad in 2014 because of injury like he plays 49 32 and 50 games his first three seasons in Bayern's first team that brings us to the end of the 11-12 season he's 23 years of age he gets injured the next season only plays 18 games 
misses the entirety of the following season, plays only 16 games the season after, nine games, three games, and he's gone. He goes to Schalke on loan, and he struggles there. He goes to Stuttgart, and the first season, he stayed fit and was really good. And then the injuries kicked back in, and, and that was sort of it. He finished up playing in the Swiss Super League for Luzerne, and again, the injuries just hampered him, and he is retired almost two years now. He should have been a really, really special player, and injuries absolutely wounded. It should have been him starting in the World Cup final in 2014, next to Matt Summers. It should have been him. He was that good. Klaas-Jan Huntelaar, um, I would say a very, very good player who made the wrong moves. Real Madrid was the wrong move from Ajax. At that point, it was just a really poor move for him. They already had a couple of strikers. They signed him kind of as an emergency because he's running out of contract with Ajax. Milan was another poor move. So he kind of loses a year and a half of his career, but goes to Schalke and does well. Overcomes a number of injuries over his career. Obviously goes back to Ajax to finish off. Does well and then had that little spell of Schalke. I, I think he made a couple of wrong moves, but I do think he was a very, very good player. And obviously his goal-scoring record is outstanding. You know, you're looking at a fella who scored 367 goals in 665 games. Um was double figures every season bar the season he spent with Milan from 03-04 all the way through to 16-17 his last year with Schalke. Back to double figures for the first three seasons at Ajax, including 23-43 and 43 in 18-19, at which point he was 35 turning 36. At international level, 42 goals in 76 games. Pretty good. Oscar Cardoso was a player I really liked. Lovely, lovely left foot. Big. Looked kind of lazy, but could do a bit of everything. It was unbelievable for Benfica. Did pretty well at Trabzonspor. He's back home now, I think, playing in uh, in in Paraguay. But yeah, now you can get me on him all day. I really liked him. Even before he got to Europe, you know, when he was playing for Newell's Old Boys, there was a lot of hype about him. Didn't see him there, but there's a lot of hype about him at the time. And when he arrived at Benfica and just started banging in goals, left, right and centre, there was nothing nothing anybody could do to stop him. And it wasn't just like a thing where he did it just in the Portuguese league. He was banging goals in in European competition as well, and he was a nightmare to play against. So, yeah, I really liked him. Sean Wright Phillips made the wrong move going to Chelsea. Super exciting for City when he broke into their team. One of the most exciting players in the league. Chelsea were spending money left, right and centre. City weren't the City they are now. This was before they got any money. Um, he He was so much fun. Tiny, but lightning had great balance. Similar to Raheem Sterling, but with more pace and a bit more strength about him. And yeah, he was so much fun for City. 
the Chelsea move was an unmitigated disaster and he was never the same after that. Never the same. Lucio, overrated. Um, overrated because he was very good at stepping out with the ball and carrying the ball into midfield, but he was he was error-prone as a defender. He just was. And he had a great career, don't get me wrong. He had a great career as part of Brazil team that won the World Cup in 2 Part of a Bayer Leverkusen team that almost won everything and ended up with nothing. Part of a good Bayern Munich team, a very good Inter Milan team that obviously won a treble. But yeah, for me, overrated. I, I think defensively he made a lot of mistakes, but was a great was great on the ball. Uh, Juan Roman Raquelme is one of my favorite players of all time to watch, but definitely had an underwhelming career for the talent. I mean, this guy. You you heard these stories about him, or you, and you'd read about him in World Soccer magazine. Would talk about Juan Roman Raquelme, this genius playmaker at Boca Juniors, and then Barcelona sign him, and it's just a complete disaster. Obviously, he had a good run with Villarreal, but yeah, overall, an underwhelming career. His international career was over at the age of 30, 51 caps. He should have easily made 100 caps for Argentina. Super, super talent. Incredible vision, passing, touch, dribbling ability. But played the game his way and his way only, and that wasn't going to sit well with a lot of managers. Alexander Kleb, I really liked. Really, really liked. Saw him first for Stuttgart, thought, I really want him at Liverpool. He ends up going to Arsenal, has three really good years there. Makes the wrong move in going to Barcelona and at 27, that kind of killed his career. And then it was loans and, you know, sort of a journeyman existence bouncing between Turkey and his homeland, Belarus. And, um, yeah, I loved him, but he definitely didn't have the career he, did, he should have had. The The move to Barcelona was really, really bad for him. He could understand why he did it, but it was the worst move he could have made at the time. Uh, Hulk, power, pace, rocket launch of a left foot, but never, never really threatened to become a great player. Obviously went to Zenit St. Petersburg, kind of, kind of in his prime, wasn't he? When he left Porto to go to Zenit, let's see. Um, he left Porto in 2012. He was 26. He was he was scoring the most spectacular goals in Europe at the time. He'd scored 10 and 31, 35 and 53, 21 in 39, and then he went to Zenit. And look, he he smashed goals for Zenit as well. He did really well there. And then he moved on to China and he did really well there. And then he moved back to Brazil and he did exceptionally well there as well. And he's still playing for Atletico Mineiro. Uh, But I feel like he should have been more. I do wonder if top sides decided to swerve him because he was so... Hulk focused. He only wanted to do his thing. 
cut inside on the left foot and absolutely launch rockets into the top corner. Had such a bizarre career as well. Started out, obviously, in Brazil, where he's from. Um, moved to Japan. Got loaned to J- Japan's second division. And then from there, was sold to them. Porto bought him straight out of the Japanese second division. He just walked in and started launching rockets into the top corner, but just never really threatened to become a great player. Was a spectacular player and was, was loads of fun. Loads of fun to watch. But like his, his goal comp on YouTube, I'm sure, is one of the best you'll ever see. But, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it just didn't work out for him. Um, I, I would say Zenith was the wrong move, considering he had other clubs interested, but it, he took the money in fair play. Uh, Ignacio Camacho, Nacho Camacho, a favourite of mine and Carol Matchett. Loved him at Malaga. Absolutely loved him at Malaga. It really didn't work out at Wolfsburg, and the injuries just sort of scuppered his career, but... When he was at Malaga, he was one of the best defensive midfielders in Europe, and he really should have more than one cap for Spain. Very unfortunate that he was around at the same time as Busquets, but really, really good player. Um, Liked him his whole career. Christian Pavon, one of the disappointments for me of the last decade. Super talented, came through at uh, Teleres, went to Boca. I saw him at Boca and thought, this kid's going to be a star. Looked like he had the world at his feet at the end of the 16-17 season. It was a real breakout year for me. He established himself as a starter. And then, for whatever reason, he kind of stagnated, went on loan to LA Galaxy. It was it was a failed experiment, really. Had a decent second season there. Um, went back to Boca. And then he's now playing for Atletico Monero. I haven't seen him play for Atletico Monero, but you know he's there on a three-year deal. And fair play, he's still only 26. He still has a bit of time to maybe get things back on track. There's definitely talent there, but yeah, he's a, he's a disappointment for me. Uh, Uguchi Onyewu. Um, I, 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 I remember seeing him play early in his career for Standard Liège. He was... He's at Liège for like seven, eight years. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the team that like Axel Witzel and um, Axel Witzel, Stephen DeFore, and the fellow with the hair, Marouane Fellaini. They were all in that team as well. And I remember thinking like he's big, he's quick, he looks imposing. He might have a, a proper career here. He went to Newcastle alone, it was a disaster. Went to Milan, disaster. 20, disaster. Sporting, disaster. Malaga, disaster. QPR, disaster. Did okay at Sheffield Wednesday. He was 32 at this point. He probably stayed with Standard a year, maybe a year too long, but the loan to Newcastle having gone so poorly is probably what is probably what prompted him to stay and try and rebuild his his reputation. But yeah, just I think overall a, a bit of a disappointment for me. But did have some really good years at Standard 
I think they're probably when he was having his best years for the national team as well. Uh, Martin D. Michaelis was an interesting one. He's a good defender who, if he'd had a bit more pace, could have potentially been a great defender. Uh, came to the Premier League a bit too late. I would have loved to have seen him come earlier in his career, but obviously he was playing for for Bayern Munich and then he went to Malaga when they were spending loads of money. Um, he spent his best years at, at River Plate and Bayern Munich. I'm not going to criticise him. A good player, now River Plate manager, and I'm really interested to see how he does there. But yeah, I always had a, I always had a soft spot for Martin Di Michaelis. Uh, Miguel, Miguel Veloso, um, my most prominent memory of him was I was watching a game. He was playing for Sporting. It was like his last season there, I think. And the commentator said something, and I couldn't understand it because it was in Portuguese. The commentator said something, and the co-commentator laughed. And it turned out the commentator had said, isn't his arse massive? What's happened to him? His arse has gotten massive. Um, that's the, the most common thing I remember. Him. I, he played for Genoa for a couple of years. It, actually, he played for Genoa for probably six years and uh, was largely forgettable, to be honest. Largely forgettable. Now playing for Hellas Verona. Disappointing career. Disappointing career for... Because he was super talented when he came through at Sporting. Him and didn't him and Joe Matinho came through around the same time, and looked like they'd be, you know, equals. And now Joe Matinho's had a much better career. And the last one here is Walter Samuel, who's one of my favorite centre backs of all time. Uh, he made one wrong move in his career, and that was going to Real Madrid, but he quickly rectified it. But he was great for Boca. Started off with Newell's Old Boys, went to Boca, was great for them. Capello brought him to Roma and he was amazing. Absolutely amazing for Roma. Um, One of the foundational pieces of Capello's title winning team there. Went to Real in 04. It was him and Woodgate they bought together. Neither of them worked out. Went back to Italy to play for Inter. Was at Inter for nine years. Was part of that treble winning team with Lucio. Won five league titles, three Coppa Italias in the Champions League there. And what I liked about him was he didn't have the ego where, you know, he was no longer able to play for Inter. So he just retired. He went and played for Basel for a couple of years. And I don't know how it went. I didn't watch much Swiss football those years. But I loved him. Should have had many more caps for Argentina. I don't know how he only ended up at 56. But I loved him. I thought he was a great defender. The wall. There was just... There was no way around him. He was just never, a never-ending human being. But yeah, he was, he was a great defender. Loved him. Underrated. Massively underrated. And that's that. That is all our questions. So, we will wrap up with the gossip. If we can find the gossip. Here it is. Manchester United are prepared to offer €4 million Euros to take Atletico Madrid striker João Felix on loan for the rest of the season, but the Spanish club won €12 to €13 million. Euros. Benfica have rejected Chelsea's first offer for Enzo Fernandez. The Blues want to pay €112 million across three years. 
but the Portuguese club want 106 million paid in full and Chelsea can't afford it. Chelsea are interested in signing Moises Caicedo. This is from Ben Jacobs, and if we've learned anything, it's that Ben Jacobs is a liar, a spoofer and a charlatan. Real Madrid are increasingly confident of winning the chase for Jude Bellingham. Yeah, I, I kind of have a feeling they will. If I'm being honest, I really do have a feeling that they will. How would you turn it down? You get to go play with Valverde, Camavinga and Chuameni for the next decade. Vinicius Jr. They're probably going to sign Guardiola as well. They'll get Haaland or Mbappe eventually. They've got Endrick arriving. They sort their fullbacks out. They're set for a decade because they've got really good other young midfielders. They've got... They probably need another centre-back. They need Gavardiol and another centre-back. They probably need an entire back four, but they've got a great goalkeeper and a very, very good young goalkeeper in Valerie Lunen. So, is it Valerie Lunen or Andre Lunen? It could be Andre Lunen. Uh, I might have made Valerie Lunen up, but yeah, anyway, if I was him, that's probably where I'd go. Everton manager Frank Lampard will be in charge for the club's third-round FA Cup tie against Manchester United amid serious doubts about his long-term future. Aston Villa have rejected a bid from Everton to sign Danny Ings on loan. The Midlands will only accept the 30-year-old departing on a permanent move, which is the right thing to do. Everton are open to letting Abdoulaye Dukure leave the club on a permanent deal during January and talks have play- taken place with Fulham. Shakhtar Donetsk are set to turn down Arsenal's improved £62 million bid for Mikhailo Mudrik as talks place, take place with Chelsea. Chelsea are willing to beat any offer Arsenal make. Chelsea, I think, are going to get the player. Wolves are unaware of reported interest from Liverpool in Matthias Nunes. No, they're not. Don't be stupid. Of course they're not. Liverpool will not attempt to sign Nunes this month because FIFA transfer regulations mean he couldn't play till next season. Roberto Firmino is attracting interest from Saudi Arabia but he's leaning towards extending his contract. Go to Saudi Arabia, have fun, earn a load of money, you'll be all right. Chelsea have held preliminary talks. No, sorry, Leicester have held preliminary talks about signing Danish left-back Victor Christensen from FC Copenhagen, uh, who might accept an initial fee of 5 to £8 million for the 20-year-old. He's meant to be very, very talented. I haven't seen him, but, you know... He's meant to be very, very talented. Southampton are in talks with Senegal midfielder Nicholas Jackson's camp about signing the 21-year-old on loan with an option to buy. That would be a hell of a signing. I'd be really surprised if Villarreal allowed him to go, though. Barcelona are set to sign Inigo Martinez when his contract runs out. So it's just typical Barcelona stupidity. Stop giving old players big contracts. Spain forward Ansu Fati could be offered out on loan by Barcelona as La Liga Giant as the La Liga Giants bid to create space in their squad for January signings. They're not going to sign anybody because they're not they've they've got no money. Like they're financially screwed. So yeah, that's nonsense. Uh we'll leave it there then, folks. I will say thank you very much and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.